Today's episode is presented by the European Commission. We need to act now and bring nature back into our lives. Europe is leading the way with the European Green Deal. Join us at the EU Green Week conference to find out how. We need people to be comfortable and and reassured that they can travel and that there is at least at EU level a coordination because without this, our sector will not be able to restart. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard the voice of Marie Audrain, the top lobbyist for Europe's hospitality sector, which has been hit particularly hard by the coronavirus once again, as bars, restaurants and cafes are closed down across the continent and travel declines dramatically. We'll hear about the scale of the impact on the industry and what it wants from politicians later in the podcast. Before that... Something like normal EU business invaded the mad world that is 2020 this week, as ministers and MEPs worked late into the night to reach agreements on farm subsidies and how green they should be. But that's not the end of it, it's just the end of the beginning, and we'll dive into the details later. But first, let's talk transatlantic relations and how politicians should do politics in a pandemic. So it's a warm welcome back to our podcast panel, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And hi to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. So, Matt, I thought we would um, start by talking a bit about a piece uh, that you wrote on our shiny new website uh, this week, uh, much revamped, politico.eu. And so one of the flagship early pieces on the on the new site was a piece by you with a, an interesting headline, Trump, Biden and the F followed by some asterisks, Germans. So I imagine you've had an interesting week being based in Berlin. Can you give, you know, our listeners who may not have had a chance to read it, give them a flavour of it? And then, of course, they can find the full thing on the site. The piece is basically a reporter's notebook of a sort looking at the state of the transatlantic relationships and focusing in particular on a lot of the frustrations that the U.S. has had uh, recently, but also predating Trump with Germany on a lot of fronts and also kind of considering where the relationship might be going in the coming years, uh, even if Biden wins and some of the challenges that uh, will lie ahead there. And the uh, quote that you mentioned, the the headline, is actually a quote from uh, John McCain that uh, I referred to in the piece, uh, a comment that he made uh, to me once, really more in jest, but kind of, I thought, captured this frustration that a a lot of American officials have. Mm. Um, And yeah, another point that you raise in in the article is also just the question of making the case or America making the case for the kind of engagement and presence that it has in Germany, uh, including the military presence. We know that Donald Trump is planning to cut that presence, but it's also, I guess, a question in terms of American public opinion and how you you make that case and, and whether that becomes just more and more difficult. But we'll leave that aside for a moment because, Reem, I want to just bring you in now. I wonder if you have any thoughts on Matt's piece and also if you've had the chance to talk to French officials in particular about how they're looking at the US presidential election and what they uh, make of the prospect of a Biden presidency. So, you know, what's what really struck me uh, about Matt's piece is that 
it sounds a lot like Macron in many ways, much to perhaps Matt's dismay. <laughs> Matt, Matt will love that comparison. Yeah, Matt, um, you just we missed both, the brain dead. We both dead. love Emily in Paris. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really don't think Macron watches Emily in Paris, but that's yeah. just me. The reason why I say this is because... Macron's whole pitch has been that uh, it is time in 2020 for the Europeans uh, to take their affairs more in hand, to be a partner that is a more equal partner with uh, America, to take their responsibilities and to be able to sort of build a new kind of transatlantic uh, relationship. Matt, how do you feel about the fact that you've wrote, written the case for strategic autonomy? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, although I do think that strategic autonomy is something of a fantasy, and 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 this is the the problem I think that that Germany faces and and that Europe faces is that strategic autonomy in sort of the short to medium term is is just not not really a a viable alternative. Um, it, it'll also be important, you know, to see who wins the chancellery a year from now because. You know, with, with Merkel leaving, that does leave obviously a uh, maybe not a vacuum, but there will be possibly a redefinition of German strategic policy. Mm. Well, I'm sure those are topics we'll, we'll revisit for sure. Let me just jump on to another topic, which is kind of, I guess, a revival of something that we talked about when the coronavirus first hit, you know, early in the year. And it seems to be coming back with a vengeance now. And that's the issue of, of politics, uh, you know, in the middle of a pandemic and, and how you do it. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because one of the kind of big talking points in the Brussels bubble this week um, was the fact that Ursula of von der Leyen, uh, as some of our uh, readers and listeners may know, left the European Council summit uh, last week, just as she was actually about to brief leaders, because she was informed that someone in her front office had tested positive for COVID-19. And so um, she left the summit and said she was going into self-isolation. What she did not mention, and what we found out kind of by chance, I think, when a, a spokesman let it slip, was that she'd actually gone all the way to Germany, rather than across the street to the European Commission building which is where she actually lives. And uh, then today we've had the news that Jens Spahn, the German health minister, has tested positive. And so I think this and other issues just raise the question as to how you conduct politics. If people are going to be permanently going in and out of isolation, if people are actually going to catch the virus, you know, should the politicians be following the same rules as everyone else, basically staying home, which is you know, getting pretty close to the guidance in a lot of European countries, certainly not undertaking what would be deemed unnecessary travel, although then you get into the whole question of what's essential, what's not. Or should we be saying, actually, these are essential workers and it is important that they meet face to face, even if that, you know, brings with it, you know, greater risks. Reem, what do you think? Yeah, diplomats and French officials, high-level French officials, have continued to say that they tried to do diplomacy over Zoom calls and video conferences, and it's just not a replacement for in-person diplomacy, because some of the issues that have come up uh, throughout this pandemic, but also as kind of the world has continued to grind on, are too sensitive. They require sort of that person-to-person -person contact. 
So they definitely, I mean, I feel like most of the, if not all of the French officials I've been talking to about this are firmly in the camp of they are essential workers. They need to continue doing in-person meetings, uh, taking all the precautions necessary. So they're essential workers, but they're not above the guidance and above the laws. Right. Then obviously the question comes in as to setting an example, even if it uh, may be, you know, more convenient for them. And, uh, you know, they would obviously make the case that they're working on behalf of all of us. Um, but at the same time, it sends a kind of signal, which is, you know, the rules don't apply to all of us, which can be, I think, a bit dangerous when you're trying to kind of get everybody to to pull together. But it does fit with the, with the French uh, line, especially on the European Parliament sessions in Strasbourg, which they insist should continue. So I guess it's, you know, it's at least consistent. Matt, what about Germany and how are, you know, how are politicians dealing with, you know, the kind of art of politics in the middle of all this? And has there been any change lately? Well, the fact that Spahn got the virus kind of shows that uh, even people who are taking a lot of precautions, you know, still have a, a high risk of of getting it. And I, I've seen him kind of out and about town at various events where it's, you know, actually surprised me a bit that uh, that he would attend in person. Given that he's the health minister, it's clearly important that he in, engage. So you have to, I guess, just be willing to take uh, certain risks. And I, I think that I, I don't get the sense that there's a lot of panic, to mm. be honest. Yeah, well, this is it. maybe getting used to living with um, the virus. And this is this is kind of part and parcel of that. I do think we will, you know, we will see how much obviously this stuff is particularly crucial or has been in the way that the EU works when you've got 27 different countries and you're trying to get people round a table to to agree on on common positions on things, and um, they've certainly tried to do that by Zoom, but there are all sorts of technical limitations on that, and of course questions also about confidentiality. That's one of the things that Charles Michel, the European Council president, mentioned when this issue came up in the European Council when a couple of prime ministers, you know. Uh, they didn't quite go as far as to question why they were there in Brussels last week, but they certainly made the point that there was a certain risk to travelling and that should be borne in mind. And he said, well, we've just had a discussion about Brexit. You know, could we have done that to the same extent if we were doing this by Zoom? At least that's what we heard or, or a version along those lines. So I guess this is this is one to watch because, you know, the EU legislative machine is, you know, it's a big machine. And at the moment, it's not able to kind of churn through the same volume of stuff as it would in normal times. To add to your point, Andrew, what I did hear is on that last sort of UCO Brexit uh, conversation is the leaders were asked to leave their phones in metal boxes outside. And one of the leaders sort of uh, said that, you know, perhaps next time we shouldn't be here in person. And what I've heard from uh, is that, you know, Angela Merkel quipped and said, you know, we asked all of you to leave the phones outside. Do you think we could have done that over Zoom? And yeah. that's just a really good representation of what it is, why they sometimes need to meet in person. Right, that's the, that's the dilemma, I think. Okay, well, we'll leave that for now. Um, Reem, Matt, thanks for the moment, but we'll be back with our uh, new feature, which I'm still looking for a name for, if anybody has any ideas. I had confidential commendations, which is, let's be honest, just not very good. So if anyone has any better ideas, but it's basically the bit where we come back and recommend things for people who are having to spend more and more time uh, indoors. Could be something to read, uh, something to watch, something to listen to. So we'll be back with those a bit later in the podcast. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the common agricultural policy took centre stage in the EU this week. Despite everything else that's going on, it's still a big deal. 
Let's get the lowdown on what happened with political agriculture reporter Eddie Wax. Maybe just start by setting out how big a deal is this in financial terms, right? Because it's a big chunk of the of the EU budget. It's a huge chunk and actually it comes to around 340 billion euros over the next seven years. That will be funneled into farm subsidies for the EU's uh, farmers. Uh, that was decided at the budget summit um, by, by the top European leaders in, in July. So it's a huge amount of money, about 48 billion euros per year. Right. And this is it. So they agreed on the top line, but then it's a question as to how that pie is divided up, right, which is a lot of what was being discussed in recent days. So what were the big kind of fault lines? What were the big battles here? You know, who was on what side and, um, you know, how did it end up? So, I mean, you have two different sides in two of the EU institutions in the council. So that's the the countries. Um, I think it's broadly fair to say that their eastern bloc of countries were kind of opposing the western, some of the western countries, Germany, leading the meetings, France, Spain. And the main debate there, as in the parliament, has been how green the new common agricultural policy should be. How much ambition should we be asking farmers to to have when it comes to managing their, their farmland, their croplands in exchange for receiving EU subsidies? And the big headline debate that has gone on both in the European Parliament and in the Council ministerial discussions is about this new idea for eco-schemes. So these are going to be one-year programmes that will be voluntary for farmers to take up. Um, And the question has been how much money should be earmarked for those schemes. Mm. Are there any examples that have been cited as to what uh, an eco-scheme would be, That the kind of just something that we could envisage in concrete terms as to how this money you know, could be used for environmental purposes? Yeah, so we're talking about um, four broad areas of green farming, of ecological farming, either agroecology itself, agroforestry, um, then there's something called carbon farming, which is where farmers are incentivized with subsidies to keep carbon in the ground, so stop it coming out into the atmosphere and increasing global warming. And also there's something called precision farming, which is using lots of high-tech equipment, tractors, GPS, to be able to minimize the amount of pesticides you use. But these four headline ideas of how the eco-schemes could be used are also politically charged and, and causing political debate because environmentalists want countries to have to offer certain schemes to farmers, but member states want a lot more flexibility in what they can offer. Okay, and so where did the where did the council and where did the parliament end up on that? So governments want a fifth of the money to be ring-fenced for these new green schemes. And the parliament, although the parliament is still finalising its votes and its position this week, has basically said that it wants 30%. So we can imagine that in these trilogue three-way negotiations where the commission would also have a seat at the table, a figure of 25%, so a quarter of, of the money, may be um, finalised. However, you know, this is not all the money. This is, there's, the cap is divided into two chunks. One part is for direct payments for farmers, based on how much land they have. The second part is for rural development. So we're talking, for the eco-schemes, we're only talking about that direct payments budget. Right, okay. And I um, pushed you away from the jargon, but they talk about pillar one and pillar two for those two different chunks, which you explained very, very well. How has this gone down with farmers and how has it gone down with environmentalists? I see that Greta Thunberg has taken a very close interest in this. Exactly. The uh, Greta Thunberg has been following this like a hawk um, and denouncing what she sees as total greenwashing and a failure for the environment and for the climate by both the parliament and EU governments here. So I think it's fair to say that um, environmentalists are very much up in arms about what has been provisionally um, agreed this week. Farmers, I think, are relieved 
because this is already a cap reform which has been delayed. So ultimately, if this reform had been totally rejected, the question of whether they would be receiving subsidies would become an open one. Right. They need to basically get uh, a, you know legislation through for the cap to continue, to be revamped and continue. Right? Exactly. And the cap reform has, you know, we've already been waiting since 2018 with the, when the commission first gave its blueprint for how this new farm policy would work. So it's been years of discussion already. These trilogue negotiations will probably run on for months more. And farmers, I think, were just were just relieved that the money taps will continue to flow over the next seven years. What's the, the kind of uh, main point of the environmentalists concerned? Do they feel these targets aren't high enough or also that there are you know, too many loopholes that means that they won't actually be used for, for ecological purposes? Exactly. It's a few things. I mean, firstly, it's the fact that there are, there are meant going to be, uh, it seems, many loopholes for these eco-schemes and some of the, there's a quite a lot of creative accounting that's going to be involved in what counts towards these eco-schemes, um, which even the European Commission has pointed out. But it's also, it's also the sense that um, the very foundation of the cap is based on how much land farmers have. That's how much money you receive. It's per hectare. And that hasn't fundamentally really been changed at all in this reform. So that's why some people, some environmentalists call it a non-reform. But the third reason, and probably the most politically interesting and politically charged uh, reason why this cap is getting such a lot of flack is because there doesn't really seem to be much of a link between this CAP and the Green Deal. And the Green Deal, you know, this is the Commission's flagship policy. Almost every file in being discussed in Brussels these days seems to be talked about in light of the Green Deal. But MEPs in the Parliament actually voted down an explicit link between the two legal texts of these two policies. And the council has also pushed pushed against linking the two explicitly as well. So that's causing a lot of fuss. Okay, got it. Um, and do we have any sense as to when this will all be resolved? As you say, the the next step, I guess, is these uh, trilogues, three way negotiations between the three main EU institutions. Do we? Is there a kind of timeline there? Well, the German presidency of the council, so that's so that's Germany is chairing the meetings of ministers this half of the year, they want the the discussions to be wrapped up by March next year. But as a senior EU diplomat um, immediately said after I questioned um, them about this uh, this target date, well, deadlines are there to be broken. So um, I think the last cap had to have 46 trilogue meetings and it dragged on for months and months. So I don't think we're going to be completely finalising the next CAP anytime soon. Okay, great. I think that covers it. Thanks very much, Eddie. Thank you. A message from the European Commission. Without nature, there is no life on Earth. It's time to reverse biodiversity loss and damage to nature. As we emerge from the pandemic, we have a chance to create a more sustainable economy. One that doesn't destroy our life support system, but protects, restores and heals it instead. Join us at the EU Green Week Conference from October 19th to 22nd to explore how this can be achieved. Three days of exciting virtual debates on how protecting and restoring nature can stimulate recovery and create jobs, helping us build a society that is healthier and more resilient. As world leaders get ready to work on new ambitious global biodiversity targets, Europe is setting the pace with the hashtag EU Green Deal. 
Now, let's turn to the impact of the pandemic on the hospitality industry. Earlier this week, our producer, Christina Gonzalez, spoke to Marie Audren, Director General of HOTREC. That's the association that represents hotels, restaurants, bars and cafes across Europe. It has 45 member associations across the continent. And Audren started by outlining to Christina just how big the hospitality sector is in Europe. We estimate uh, 10 to 11 million uh, jobs. And of course, some are full-time jobs, but also some are part-time jobs. For Otrek, before the crisis, uh, we represent about 2 million businesses. And what is, of course, very important and striking in the sector is that 90% of these businesses are very small. These are uh, family establishments, family-run hotels or family-run restaurants and cafes. So that's really important feature. Of course, in terms of uh, the revenue generating, if you look at what we call now the tourism ecosystem, and we are an important pillar, it's about 10 to 11% of the uh, European gross revenue. I'm sure every listener out there has some sense that hotels, restaurants, cafes around Europe have been impacted dramatically by this pandemic. But can you give us more specifics about the magnitude or the the scale of this impact? Well, clearly, for example, what we call now the first wave, although sometimes I wonder if we are at the end of the first wave or in the second wave. No, but seriously, from March to June, all over Europe, our establishments were basically closed everywhere. So either because of governmental restrictions, so full lockdown, or because they were empty. So in terms of loss of turnover, it was about almost for some 100% of loss. So that was really dramatic. And uh, I I think that, uh, you know, our sector really was one of the first to be it and will be one of the last to come back and recover because we are really structurally impacted. Of course, uh, we've seen uh, some um, hope in June, from June, when things were restarting to reopen. And it's clear that for some countries, uh, we managed well the summer, not as we could have hoped before the crisis, obviously. But in, in some areas, it went very well. Obviously, other places, uh, if you think about, for example, the importance of business tourism in some big cities, this was not happening and this might not happen for a number of months. How much worse do you expect it to get from here? Yeah, no, look, unfortunately, I mean, and we are, of course, uh, very concerned as well. And there's been a lot of uh, investment in the establishment in terms of the sanitary uh, you know, precaution and, and putting in place all the social distancing measure. But what we are seeing right now is that, uh, look, Ireland is in almost full lockdown from now for six weeks, and it announces that at Christmas our establishment will remain closed. We have that in Brussels, in Belgium, restaurants and cafes have been closed. So the, the concern and, and what is happening to right now is, is really our members are struggling for survival. And it's very difficult to predict because we are in this uh, uncertainty, very difficult to plan and to manage for um, establishment. So we hope that uh, there will be some uh, hope for a vaccine or a treatment and an improvement in the health situation or 
at least some reassurance that we will have to restart the economy one way or the other. But for the time being, and you will see, most of the measures are affecting our establishment first. And even if your hotel is open, there are no guests in uh, many of um, many places because people don't know where to travel, how to travel. I mean, this is something we've called very strongly as well, that there are more Europe coordination. You see, situation is changing on a weekly basis, very different, and this is just impossible to plan ahead. We need people to be comfortable and and reassure that they can travel and that there is at least at EU level a coordination. So recently, the fact that EU member states agreed at least on the common map of Europe is one step, but we need to go further because without this, our sector um, will not be able to restart. And when you say further, what exactly are you asking for? So for example, uh, we think that there should be much more you know, bigger and and end of the testing and not having those quarantines, but rather improve uh, the capacity uh, for testing and really put that in place in in airports and and everywhere at place of of, of travel, but not having all those different quarantines rules all across Europe. But are you sure that testing as compared to quarantine would be safe? Well, we think that right now, I mean, the, the testing improves and the, the capacity improves. And this is what is applied in some member states. So I, I think we have to, of course, I mean, and, and it's also where the coordination is, is important to pull together the science and what they know. But we think it's the way forward. So I hope that after this crisis and when we hopefully uh, come back to uh, recover and restart, there will be a uh, a better and a stronger consideration of this part of the European economy. Do you feel like officials are hearing you? So there is, at least I find at a political level, a support. Now, there are many departments where I think we can work together. You know, what DG Competition is doing about the state aid can be very important. Uh, we work also with DG Employment and um, the, the fact that they have activated this, what they call so the SURE mechanism, which is a mechanism to support member states' scheme on unemployment, is very important for the sector. So we are also advocating that there is a stronger recommendation and flexibility to use reduced VAT rate for the hospitality. Uh, that's, of course, uh, uh, very important, and some member states have put that in place. Here in Brussels, right now, we're in a period where restaurants have been closed once again, while at the same time, I can still, for example, go to the gym. So, of course, there are certain measures in place there, but I guess my question to you would be, if you feel like there's any sense of injustice here, do you feel like this is discrimination against restaurants in particular? Look, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy one, but... I mean, and, and certainly not something, you know, you say at a European level, but in a way, if you look around and I can feel the injustice also for our members, who, as I said, they've, they've invested a lot into their place to make them safe and, and to really uh, explain to their customers and, and make sure they follow the rules. And now they are really the first one uh, closed and it's by that. In terms of evidence, there are not that much evidence around. So it's true that this virus came as a very brutally and, and, and as a, a shock. But 
So we still maybe need a bit more time, but right now there is not that much evidence about the fact that the virus is really um, mostly um, circulating in bars and, and restaurants. Mm. Guest confidence is is so huge, and even you know in the EU we can see across borders. And I think sometimes people forget that. And so we talk to our friends who are in France and they can go to a restaurant, but it closes at nine versus those who can't go at all. And we start to see all of these sorts of disparate measures being imposed. And I suppose that just makes it hard for customers to understand really where the lines are in terms of where the risk ends and where health and safety begins. You know, it's evolving every day, it's changing every day, so we cannot plan. But indeed, what is important for us is that uh, people can return safely. I mean, we have no interest going around uh, any regulation or, or playing with it. Not absolutely not. I mean, people want to open and they want to work. And it's maybe difficult because you have less clients, less people because you respect the distancing, but at least you know, you're there and, and you work, you're not closed. You know, this is very sad. Okay, thanks to Christina for bringing us that uh, conversation. And now we are back with our recommendations, you know, streaming, reading, listening. Um, Matt shocked us all last week by recommending Emily in Paris. And I have to say, could be a while before I take you up on any of your recommendations again, Matt. Uh, that really is uh, half an hour of my life that I will. You got to watch the whole thing. I just get, no. watched the tenth episode. Last oh, really? That's great. <laughs> you're kidding. Great. You're you're kidding now. Anyway, Matt, have you have you got one for this week? Can you top Emily in Paris? I, I, I do. It's a little bit more serious this week. People are going to think that I'm uh, working for Netflix or something, but it's also a multi-part series. Uh, it's called A Perfect Crime, and it's about the assassination of a man named Detlev Roveda, who was the head of the uh, Troy Hunt, which was the organization that they set up after reunification to sell off all of uh, East Germany's industry and, and companies, thousands of, of companies that were uh, auctioned off at the time. And he was uh, assassinated in 1991. And uh, there's been a lot of mystery over the years uh, surrounding this case and who actually killed him. And uh, anyway, this show gets into that case, but it is also uh, quite an interesting look, I think, at Germany at that time. And for people who follow European politics today, um, I think it's it's quite interesting just to, to see kind of what German political life was like then and how it has evolved. Okay. Reem, what about your recommendation? So since we're all talking about the U.S. election, uh, and we know how much uh, current President Trump loves Fox News, it's one a documentary and two a miniseries. So the multi-part sort of miniseries starring Russell Crowe as Roger Ailes, and he really sort of transforms into him, is called The Loudest Voice. And then the documentary about Roger Ailes and how he built Fox News is called Divide and Conquer, the story of Roger Ailes. And in both, what is very striking is to see just how far ahead, you know, whether one agrees or not with Roger Ailes and his politics, it's just very interesting to go back to how Fox News came about and how basically it changed the way a lot of American politics happened. And of course, both documentaries also get to the allegations of sexual misconduct by Roger Ailes uh, with his own 
staffers, uh, you know, women that he was hiring based on looks uh, and uh, who say and allege that he tried to uh, exchange sexual favors in order for them to get ahead uh, in Fox News. Okay, I'm going to uh, recommend a podcast. It's actually uh, originally a BBC radio documentary called The Saigon Tapes. And um, it basically involves uh, they've got the tapes from a US officer who was based in Vietnam and would send these tapes home to his wife uh, back in the US. And uh, after one of these tapes, the tape that they have in this documentary, this officer is is killed within a few hours. And the tapes and uh, this officer's kind of recollections or his descriptions of, of life in Vietnam and uh, what's going on there are intermingled with his grandson, who's a London schoolboy, um, finding out about Vietnam as part of his schoolwork. So it's a really interesting listen. It's about half an hour. And uh, as always, we'll include uh, links to all of these in the notes along with the podcast. OK, but for now, Reem and Matt, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please take a moment to click subscribe or follow wherever you listen to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you like the podcast, we'd appreciate you clicking some stars or even leaving a short review. You can also send us feedback by email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Or you can give feedback in person if you happen to recognise my voice, as someone did in Brussels this week. Much appreciated. Always nice to put a face to a listener, even if the face is half covered by a mask these days. Ryan Heath is back on Tuesday with another episode of Campaign Confidential. And there's a whole bunch of other episodes in that series that you might want to dive into as Election Day gets closer. And we'll be back next Thursday with another EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.